Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I am your host, Dr. M, and boy, do we have a good show for you today. I have the privilege of speaking to one of my mentors, Dr. Victoria Mazes. She is the chief of the Division of Integrative Medicine. She's also a professor of medicine and professor of public health at the University of Arizona. She also holds the title of Executive Director of the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Arizona. She is also the inaugural Andrew Weil Endowed Chair in Integrative Medicine at the same institution. I had the great privilege of studying under Dr. Mazes as a fellow at the Arizona Center for Integrative Medicine between the years of 2006 and 2008. She has stewarded the growth of this program for fellows uh, and residents alike to one of the centers of excellence in the world for integrative medicine. She received her undergraduate degree from Barnard College before obtaining her medical degree from the University of California in San Francisco. She completed her residency in family medicine at the University of Missouri, Columbia, and obtained her fellowship in integrative medicine at the same University of Arizona College of Medicine. Dr. Mazes speaks all over the world to audiences of medical education, specifically regarding integrative medicine, but particularly women's health, which is one of the great reasons that I wanted her to be on this podcast discussing the importances of healthy nutrition and healthy life surrounding the female pregnancy period. She is the author of a book called Be Fruitful, The Essential Guide to Maximizing Fertility and Giving Birth to a Healthy Child, which was published in 2013. And we're going to get into some of the information that she shares in this book. But let me just tell you this. Dr. Mazes is an educator extraordinaire. She comes to this podcast loaded with years and years and years of information and knowledge. She is a classic educator coming to the table with news to use information. She breaks down complex topics in a way that will help all mothers or mothers-to-be understand the issues, the complex issues, as they present themselves in modern society in a way that's tangible and usable for everyone. She helps us understand and breaking down what are the antecedent triggers of risk? Where are we falling down as a society in helping ourselves maintain solvency of our reproductive status, of our, uh, of our hormonal health? And she is, is going to give us all of these pieces of information chock full in this hour. So I hope you are as interested as I am in this information, and I hope you find this hour to be very, very beneficial. However, before we start with the interview with Dr. Mazes, I wanted to read part of Dr. Andrew Weil's foreword in her book. Influences on human fertility are myriad. They include genetics, age, general health, nutritional and hormonal status, stress, and exposure to environmental toxins. Modern medicine is good at diagnosing the causes of infertility treating many of them, and sometimes helping infertile uh, couples conceive with expensive high-tech interventions like in vitro fertilization, otherwise known as IVF. But modern medicine tends to ignore mind-body interactions that affect fertility and has little to say about diet and the environment. Also, it is largely unaware of the usefulness of such complementary and alternative medical approaches such as traditional Chinese medicine protocols for infertility. 
With this broader perspective, integrative medicine is able to assess all of the factors that affect human fertility. Its emphasis on the whole person and on lifestyle gives it a great advantage. The author of this excellent guide is a thought leader in integrative medicine and an expert on women's health. Dr. Victoria Mazes was an established practitioner of family medicine before she trained with me at the University of Arizona. When she completed her training, I asked her to take the position of medical director and later the executive director of the Arizona Center for Integrative Medicine, now a center for excellence at the university. Today, she oversees the training of physicians, nurse practitioners, medical residents, and students. She also directs research projects and maintains a clinical practice. Recently, she co-edited Integrative Women's Health, a volume in the Integrative Medicine Library series for clinicians. Academic qualifications do not convey a full picture of Victoria Mazes. She is a warm, caring doctor, a compassionate and effective healer. Because she is committed to health promotion and follows her own lifestyle recommendations with great resolve, she embodies good health and is able to inspire patients to work toward it. The advice and information she dispenses are informed by science and drawn from her own experience. She speaks with a clear and strong voice one that is sure to resonate with readers of this book. So here you have the preeminent integrative medicine physician in the world speaking with high praise for Dr. Mazes. And I thought that the forward in her book was so emblematic of what she's capable of teaching us. And just wanted to share that with you before I go into a little more information regarding pregnancy. You know, so you think about this for all the women listening to this podcast, whether or not you are going to become a mother or you already are a mother and planning to do it again. Let's think about this from this perspective. Okay, you're ready. You want a baby. That's awesome. Where do we start? How does the human reproductive system work? How were humans made to properly conceive, carry a baby to term and deliver healthily? How does the newborn make it to the toddler years when the immune system and the healthy microbiome are mature? In this situation, I'm a big fan of the Elon Musk first principle dogma. What are the most basic building blocks needed for a child's successful growth from union of sperm and egg to strong-willed two-year-old? What are the variables involved in these processes? Dr. Mays is going to get into all this information, but let's think about this simplistically. Mothers need a balanced mind, low stress levels, helping to maintain normal function of the immune uh, neurological system complex. We need nutritional health. We need lots of good quality food. We need a healthy microbiome that is driven by many different factors, including healthy food avoidance of chemicals and toxins. Therefore, we need toxin avoidance. We need movement. We need to be actively encouraging our system to be normal through physical activity. We need natural detoxification through sweating and uh, active breathing techniques. We need adequate sun exposure and dirt and microbial exposure to prime our immune system appropriately as it has been done for millennia. Any listener to this podcast or reader of Dr. Mays' book will have to realize one thing first and foremost. No matter where you are on the continuum of health, Any change for the positive, according to the principles laid out in this book that she has published or this podcast as we're about to discuss, will advance the probability of a better outcome for mom and her babe. Change is a process and time is necessary for most of us to make actionable change. Be thoughtful, be purposeful, 
and be malleable as you commit to any change in behavior after you listen to this fabulous hour of education that Dr. Mazes has graciously provided for us. So with no further ado, I want to introduce you to the fantastic Dr. Mazes. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Well, good morning, Victoria, and I am so grateful to have you here on our show, the Women and Children First podcast. Uh, this is, for me, a unbelievable experience to have one of my greatest teachers back in 2006 bless me with some time to discuss your book, specifically Be Fruitful, The Essential Guide to Maximizing Fertility and Giving Birth to a Healthy Child. And so, hello. Well, it's such a pleasure to be here with you today, Chris. Um, you uh, have been a leader in pediatric integrative medicine, and I'm so delighted that you're covering this topic in your podcast. Well, thank you again, and, and I'm looking forward to this hour and our time together. So let's get right into it. So you wrote a, this great book, Be Fruitful, back in 2013. Let's, let's discuss specifically what, what chose you or what inspired you to go down that line of, of thinking and write this book. Well, I think there's a few things. Um, the most important is that I'm really passionate about prevention <laughs> and uh, I take a long view on prevention. So if you really wanna have a healthy human being, of course that starts in childhood, but it actually starts before childhood. It starts when you're a fetus and, and uh, living your, and developing in your mom's womb. And um, your experience there is going to be better or worse depending on how healthy your parents were before they uh, got you started in that womb. And so uh, we know this from the fetal origins hypothesis, which was David Barker's work, that your entire health from uh, day one until day 90 is outlined by what happens in fetal life. So it's not just, are you at risk of childhood problems um, like uh, congenital problems or ADHD or autism, uh, but do you develop diabetes in midlife? Do you develop heart disease in midlife? Do you develop neurodegenerative diseases towards the end of your life? All of these actually are affected. So if you're passionate about health promotion and helping create you know, the healthiest human beings possible, then you really want to start before someone's born. <laughs> yeah, I, I could say, I, I, you know, coming from the pediatric side, that long view is the key and understanding that we're seeing kids now with diseases that used to be considered adult only now in their childhood and now looking back the epigenetic data and, and the work that Dr. Randy Journal and I spoke of a few weeks ago, we are seeing that the antecedent triggers are not only transgenerational, but like you said, right from the beginning. So that prevention long view is the key. So, you know, when you, when you wrote this book, were there specific, other than the prevention inspiration, was there something else specific in your life or was it just experience you? Because I know when I read the book, you had some amazing, amazing stories of women that had trouble getting pregnant, had difficulty with their lives. And then you got involved and, and, and just dynamically changed the antecedent triggers of risk and allowed for things to change. What, what, what can you say to that side of it? Sure. So I'm going to tell you something on the personal and something on the professional. So okay. on the personal, um, when I was uh, a young girl, um, five, six, seven, eight, um, my mother's younger sister couldn't get pregnant. 
And um, she tried everything that was available at the time. She was about 40 when IVF became available. At that time, they decided that was too old. And so that wasn't offered to her. But she had surgery. She took medicines. And I uh, was close to my mom. And I would remember these whispered conversations between my mother and her younger sister. And I kept catching wind of them. And it made me wonder, um, would I be able to have a child? Um, my mother's aunt, um, so my grandmother's sister, also couldn't have children. So there was a little something that ran in my family. And I knew from a young age I wanted to have children. And indeed, happy ending. Um, I am the mother of three adults, um, and I have two <laughs> grandchildren. <laughs> so um, yes, it is a wonderful thing. So, but But I think there was always that imprinting on me that this doesn't go so well for everybody. And then as an integrative medicine doctor, I saw all kinds of, of patients in my clinic, um, mostly focused on women's health. And I remember I had this woman come in to see me. She was 49 years old. And her question was, how can I have the healthiest child possible? Now, I was a little blown away by this because as most listeners will know, 49 is not a typical age for a woman to conceive a child. But as I listened to her, her plan was to use a donor egg um, and um, her husband's sperm. And she really wanted to know what would integrative medicine say that she could do to prepare her body to be as healthy as possible for the sake of the health of that child. And that really got me intrigued. And I think led me to dive very deep. And, and yes, at this point, I've seen many, many women uh, across the age range and for all different reasons who need help with um, conceiving a child. Yeah. So I, I, I'm going to hit on the, the biggest point of that right there. Many, many different reasons. We, we don't get to this problem from one specific path. And I think if I learned anything in integrative medicine, I could tell you, you know, back in 2006, when I made the jump to join you and Dr. Weil and the whole crew down there, I was hardcore allopathic. I was everything I was trained to be, treat the symptoms, treat the disease, forget about the prevention. My lovely wife pushed me hard in the other direction with her nutrition understanding. And then I get down there and I'm starting to learn that this pathway is a web and the web is so profound in how it all coalesces into whatever the dysfunction we're looking at. So what you said there is very poignant. It, it, you look at it from an integrative perspective is so many angles to get to a potential problem and you have to look at the patient as a whole patient. So you've been sitting here looking at all these beautiful women who have this one problem, infertility potentially, and you're addressing it and, and really helping all these people move through instead of what we see in, in some cases in some allopathic situations where it is just you know in vitro therapy or whatever it is. And I think that there's a lot of lost time in between where we are discussing and what's happening there. So from the 30,000 foot view, I know you talk about prevention. If you were gonna just hone in on one or two specific things, and I know we're gonna get into your top 10, but if you're gonna hone in on a 30,000 foot view, what is the biggest antecedent trigger or problem leading to you know, these, these concerns? Yeah, I would say that it's really variable actually. Yeah. Um, from the 30,000 foot view, what I wanna say is that there are real risks at this moment in time to childhood health. There's more chronic disease, there's more autism, there's more ADHD, and that you're not powerless to just have a child who 
isn't as healthy as you would ideally hope for. There are things that you could do by improving your own health, by taking the appropriate dietary supplements, by eating a healthy diet, and we'll define that, by reducing environmental exposures. There are things that you can do that will not only help you conceive more easily, but will also uh, enhance the likelihood of having a healthy child. And so, um, this is a time in my experience that people are incredibly motivated. Sometimes we don't do things for our own health that we know that we ought, but we almost always are willing to do them for the health of our children. So I'm just suggesting that people have that lens a bit earlier in time. Yeah. And, and, I, and I tell you, that's why I sort of went down this road of mothers and children first, because mothers drive healthcare in every situation that I've ever seen. Women are so passionate, as you said, about their health when it's related to a child specifically and their offspring or their family. And so I, I think that's exactly the truth of it, the substance behind it. So let's let's get into a little bit about the infertility side of the world. So in, in your book, uh, you know, on page 63, you get into the work with Dr. Walter Willett specifically. I, I personally, after all of my research, think diet, and, and stress are probably the one, two punch of trouble. And then chemicals is the, the, the leading, th uh, the following third. So talk about Walter Willett's work. He's done this great, huge nurses health study with thousands and thousands of people. What did he and his group show us relating to food and, and infertility? Yeah, so Walter Willits is really uh, an internationally known uh, physician who specializes in public health. Uh, he recently stepped down from leading the public health initiative at Harvard. He's still involved, but uh, he turned the leadership over to a mentee of his, Frank Hu. And um, as you mentioned, he led this incredible set of studies called the Nurses Health Study and the Nurses Health Study 2. And um, it was um, a huge study, tens of thousands of women. And one of the things they focused on was fertility. Now, I just want to start by saying, you know, the most common reason that women have trouble conceiving is advanced age. And advanced okay. age is being over 40. Yeah. <laughs> and even at 35, we start to see a bit of a tilt. And, and that's not, I think, well known enough because we see a lot of celebrities who have their babies when they're 45, 46. And, you know, they may not say publicly that they're using donor eggs, for example. But the next most common is called ovulatory infertility, which is a whole range of problems where you just don't ovulate normally. Um, you may never have done so because you had a thyroid problem, or maybe you have endometriosis, or maybe you have PCOS, which is polycystic ovarian syndrome. But something makes you not ovulate normally. And so in the Nurses Health Study 2, they looked at women who had ovulatory infertility and they said, um, can we learn anything about who gets this related to the women's diet? And they learned and published a lot. So um, I'm, I'm going to get into the details, but let, let me just stop there a moment. <laughs> so so Victoria, let's let's look at that specifically. Let's look at some of these whole diet studies and where the food is affecting, you know, the the ovulatory capabilities or the infertility. Yeah. Um, so I think people generally underestimate how powerful diet is and 
what an enormous effect it has on health. And this is not just when you're trying to get pregnant, this is in life in general. It's really a, uh, you know, a push towards more inflammation, which is at the root of so many diseases or less inflammation, uh, which keeps you healthier. Uh, it is um, a way of avoiding some of the environmental toxins that we would be exposed to that would be uh, consumed by what we eat or what we drink. And so eating a freshly prepared whole food diet that has lots of vegetables and fruits that has enough of the omega-3 fatty acids, which are anti-inflammatory uh, for fertility that emphasizes vegetable or vegetarian sources of protein, uh, but also that's low in processed food, that's low in meat, and um, that's low in these rapidly digesting carbohydrates. So that's broadly what you want to be eating. And the diet that best matches that description is the Mediterranean diet, which has been so widely studied. And as it turns out, it's also been looked at uh, for uh, women's uh, ease or difficulty in conceiving. So there was a lovely study that was published um, that looked at adherence to the Mediterranean diet. And it turned out that uh, women who were following a Mediterranean diet um, were much more likely to conceive uh, than the women who followed a more typical Western style diet. In, in, in fact, 44% less difficulty conceiving if you were truly following that Mediterranean pattern. So that's an all comer Spanish study that was published uh, back in 2011. But even when we completely override women's physiology by uh, doing IVF, uh, there was a study that again, looked at the Mediterranean diet. And it turned out that when couples, so here it's not just the woman, it's that husband or partner who's also um, um, eating a Mediterranean diet. Uh, again, there was a significant um, uh, greater likelihood, 2.7 times li greater likelihood that there would be a live birth if the couple were following a Mediterranean style diet. So let me pause you there, because I think, you know, we, we clearly know that obesity, that just the, 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 the phenomenon of the disease itself is a driver of all kinds of disease, including a doubling of risk of cancer and many other things. So it, do we think it's the insulin resistance that's coming from the refined carbohydrates primarily driving the downstream risk of inflammation that we therefore see that prevents ovulation? Or what do we know about that? Well, you're right that insulin plays a role. So when we think about simple carbohydrates, things like um, a sugary breakfast cereal or a soda, uh, for example, things that have a lot of very simple carbohydrate, uh, what they do is they're rapidly digested by the body. And the way that happens is that the pancreas secretes insulin and insulin um, reduces the sex hormone binding globulin in the body. Now that's a, <laughs> that's a mouthful, but yeah, uh, sex it? hormone <laughs> binding globulin yep. uh, binds all hormones, but it actually has a preference for testosterone. So if you have less circulating sex hormone, binding globulin, you're going to have more circulating testosterone. So that puts you a little bit in, into a kind of PCOS kind of right, right. Uh, picture, but you know, that's not the only factor. Um, you know, it turns out, and this is from the nurses health study too, that women who ate more meat had a reduced um, 
fertility. They had more ovulatory infertility. And uh, each additional daily serving of red meat, of chicken, of turkey, increased their risk of ovulatory infertility by about a third. Uh, fish and eggs had what we say is a neutral effect. In other words, no effect at all. And vegetable protein actually reduced the risk of ovulatory infertility. Uh, soy pr protein was safe um, and, and actually appears to enhance fertility. Um, I think another piece that's probably a factor is some of these unhealthy foods in the typical Western diet are going to have more environmental chemicals in them. And so when people are exposed to these chemicals, they can act as uh, endocrine disruptors, which means they're going to mess with your hormones, which includes your estrogen and progesterone, your thyroid, your cortisol, and all of these, when, when tilted in the wrong direction, are going to affect fertility. So there's so many potential reasons in addition to insulin. Yeah, and this gets into some of the work that uh, Randy Jurdle was doing with his Agouti Mouse, where they looked and they they during the pre-pregnancy state were giving the pregnant the pre-pregnant mice methadone, as which we know of as food, beets, onions, and then they changed the phenotypic outcome of the mouse from a prone to diabetes, obese, and yellow mouse with the risk of cancer to brown, skinny, without those risks, and it was purely an epi epigenetic effect, and they're able to reverse that exact same effect by giving them BPA, one of the plasticizers. So we know there's a push-pull. Very hard to reproduce these studies in humans, but we know the mechanism exists for this. And so when you when you look at the totality of Walter Willett's work, it's very hard to tease out one specific piece as to why it's specifically causing it. We just know the totality of the data states that if you eat more Mediterranean, which is predominantly vegetable, polyphenol heavy, high quality diet, and less of the, what I call the processed foods, they're drivers of insulin resistance or insulin production, which then, as you stated very clearly, has an effect on sex hormone blinding globulin. We're now starting to level the scales to be a bit more balanced as opposed to unbalanced. So yeah, that, 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 is, that is the exact point that we need to get everyone to understand. It is truly about the antecedent risks, the long view prevention that you're stating is that this is what people, especially mothers, need to be aware of, that these risks can be mitigated through the research and the, the education that you're providing. So the time uh, can I, I interrupt for a second? You know, yeah. you're right. It's really hard to do the kind of a goody mouse study in women. Yeah. Um, we don't we don't do these kinds of, of studies and, you know, they wouldn't get past a review committee and, and to completely control someone's environment, pre-pregnancy, pregnancy, it's just not going to happen. So right. we have to look at other kinds of studies. And, and one that's interesting uh, to point to here is that there was a study uh, that was published back in uh, 2012 uh, in neurotoxicology that looked at Mennonite women who mostly consume homegrown produce who don't wear cosmetics, who use very few personal care products like um, moisturizers and hairspray and uh, sunscreens and things that would be uh, absorbed through the skin and affect your overall body burden of these environmental chemicals. They also typically are in horse and buggy as opposed to in, in cars or other vehicles. And when they looked at their uh, 
uh, urine samples of phthalates and of bisphenol A, they were substantially lower than the uh, comparison group, which were women in the CDC NHANES study, the National Health and Nutrition Evaluation Study. So that's a little bit of presumptive evidence that uh, sure. in pregnancy, we can make a difference. And there are other studies like that that show that when you change your lifestyle, um, you can reduce your body burden of these chemicals. So we don't have the strength of evidence that we have on um, mice, but it's not that we have no evidence. Right. And, and I'll, and I'll grab those, those, those data points from you and put them in an upcoming newsletter for folks that want to look specifically at it. And, and I think, you know, for me, you know, again, I, I, I went through school and you have to have hard level placebo control data. And, and to some of this stuff, you know, folks, we just need to understand what the risks are through mechanism. And then based on that, we can make some leaps of faith, even if we don't have that, but we can use what we do have, as you stated, as very clear lines of, uh, of, of possibility. This is what we do know. This is what's going to come out of this. And I think the other big thing that's not discussed enough is timing and dosage. You know, we've been living in this linear threshold model forever where you need a certain amount of toxic load before you're going to see it. It's sort of the diethylsilbestrol story. But epigenetics has clearly put that on its head, that we're not sure anymore that that's actually true and that the doses may be a lot lower than we ever thought they were. And the companies that produce these products are not thinking this at all, nor are they testing it. So we are living in a world where we're the guinea pigs going down this road. So I I, I really want to hammer that point home that timing and, and, and dosage and the timing key for me is first trimester, right? Pre-pregnancy and then first trimester are critical times of, of a woman's pregnancy cycle to reduce these risks because that's when the vast majority of the embryological growth is occurring in children. A any thoughts there? Yes. Yeah, so I completely agree with you. And I think that we have to follow the precautionary principle here yes. because we're never going to have the human studies. They are not ethical to do. So right. we have to use other kinds of data. We have to set aside this idea that it's only going to be randomized controlled trials. And I'll give you uh, a couple of pieces of data. One is that the Environmental Working Group, uh, really a wonderful nonprofit that uh, if your listeners uh, don't know about, it's really worth going on their website and, and seeing all the resources that are there all for free. But they did a study some years ago of um, fetal blood. So this is uh, before the baby has taken a single breath, but has just been delivered. And the average baby had more than 200 environmental chemicals in its system. Now, we don't know how bad that is, but it cannot be good. You right. know, there's no way to imagine that that this is a status quo that we could be okay with. And this is another reason why uh, preconception so that you, you catch those early stages of development. And then during pregnancy, you just really want to be incredibly careful. Uh, you mentioned the critical time of preconception and the first trimester. And I, I just want to give an example. So um, um, lots of people in this country, lots of women take antidepressants. Um, I think that uh, the last numbers I saw were about uh, four and a half percent of women uh, between 18 and 45. So that's, uh, the, that's you know, the, the ages where you're likely to be conceiving. And um, a lot of women um, may have been put on with not the best, best reason. They're mildly depressed, or maybe the depression's gone. But um, they're told, you know, you're less likely to have a recurrence if you stay on. And, and that has some truth to it. 
having said that, we know that if you take uh, an SSRI, which is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor kind of antidepressant um, in the period of time before you conceive or in your first trimester, you are at an increased risk of having a child with autism. And um, it's a significantly increased risk. Uh, so um, if you knew that, I think you would probably say, I'm going to wean off before I try to conceive. Because again, my objective is to have the um, healthiest child that I could possibly have. So this was a study that was published in the archives of general psychiatry. And it showed that there was a doubling of the risk of autism spectrum, spectrum disorder in mothers who took that SSRI for the year before delivery and a three times increase, so a 300% increased risk if they took it during their first trimester pregnancy. And I don't think that we're getting this um, news out widely enough. So again, I'm, yeah. I'm so delighted that you have this podcast for people who want to do everything they can to have a healthy child. Yeah. And I think after the last 18 years of study, what's really interesting for me in the autism world, and, and to your point, when somebody's taking an SSRI, to me, that tells me their brain is inflamed, right? They're on it. They are anxious. They have depression. Something's going on. So the whole system is inflamed. And a recent study came out showing that uh, one in five children born with autism have autoantibodies maternally derived that are attacking parts of the brain embryologic, embryologically while the, the child is inside mom. And so to me, it makes sense that the antecedent triggers that you're going to get into in your top 10 that I know clearly you're going to get into are, are all downregulating the inflammatory state of the human that drives the immunological antigen presentation against self tissue that we see of as autoimmunity. I mean, one of the other big risk factors for autism is obesity. You know, all of these things are being driven by core principles that integrative medicine, University of Arizona taught me way back in 06 when I was a fledgling, not so smart guy, not that I'm smart now, but that, that being said, the reality is that this, this inflammatory state is the driver pretty much of all the stuff we're seeing from all the disparate routes that we get to. So the antidepressant to me is a signal marker more so than anything that likely the real reasons behind all this stuff is that preconceived and inflammatory state that 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 is driving this dysfunction i want to touch on one more thing because you know the microbiome is my happy place and and i just want to <laughs> i just want to just touch on one study that i found fascinating this this study by corn et al in 2012 when they looked at the microbiome of mothers wherever that microbiome was at at day one it immediately starts to shift the bacterial flora to a storage fat storage and and growth propensity so no matter where it starts, it keeps shifting towards an insulin-resistant type pattern. So if you take the bugs of an insulin-resistant human and look at them, they have the same exact pattern of a pregnant woman. And it makes evolutionary such beautiful sense. Because if you're a person living out wherever, and we don't have huge exposure to calories, we want to store everything we can to make sure that pregnancy makes it to term and make sure that baby then is breastfed appropriately. But oh boy, how bad would this be then if we're sitting there at stage one 
of pregnancy and we're already insulin resistant. We've already been on a really bad diet, but those microbes never get the signal and they just keep going. And I wonder if we're gonna find out that one of the major drivers is just of gestational diabetes, hypertension, everything is that shift in the microbiome that's actually being driven by your top 10, which is the, the, the antecedent triggers of inflammation and disease. So let's just go right into it then, because you've laid out a beautiful framework for, for what your book tells us you know, to how to be fruitful, how to get ready for this pregnancy. What are your top tens and how can mothers who are listening to this podcast really get passionate about their own health and change so that they can put forth the best effort so they're not inflamed and they have a great pregnancy? Okay. So this wouldn't be my number one, but I have to respond to your microbiome <laughs> comment and it, it's in the top 10. And that's that um, there are things you could do to make your microbiome healthier. Uh, fermented foods. So whether that's uh, true pickles, which are the ones you get in the refrigerator section or yogurt or kimchi or sauerkraut or kombucha, whatever it is that you like, eating um, pickled and fermented foods are a way to increase the diversity. Prebiotics, which are foods often that have a lot of fiber, a lot of vegetables fit in this category, pistachios, inulin containing foods. These um, are Prebiotics, they're foods that support the nutrition of the bacteria in your tummy so that uh, they, they grow and, and they uh, increase in numbers. More fiber. Uh, here's a really good one. Dark chocolate actually uh, makes uh, the microbiome more diverse. Uh, unnecess avoiding unnecessary antibiotics. That's such an easy thing to say, but you know, yeah. sometimes people are like, I've been sick for so long. Shouldn't I take an antibiotic? And yet we know that's going to dramatically uh, be a hit on uh, reducing the, the diversity of the microbiome. Avoiding diet drinks. So anything that has aspartame in it is going to be uh, pushing you towards that um, less insulin sensitive uh, set of microbes, um, which you just mentioned is so important. Avoiding processed food. So all of the stuff that comes in boxes essentially, and yeah. is a lot of the aisles of your, uh, of your grocery store. And then gardening is helpful and having your hands in soil and especially if it's good organic soil and having a pet and, and, and a pet in the home will improve your microbiome. It'll improve your child's microbiome. So I just have to throw that in there because right. I love giving practical advice to people about what they can do. Perfect. All right. I love it. Number two. Okay. <laughs> All right. So we did talk about um, diet some. Uh, we, we talked about the need for uh, freshly prepared whole food, the Mediterranean diet, um, which um, is a diet that is rich in vegetables and legumes and some fruit. Uh, it's low in meat. Uh, it's low in rapidly digesting carbohydrates, but does include whole grains. It does include some dairy but mostly as yogurt and cheese. So they've slightly fermented um, and it includes olive oil and, and monounsaturated fats um, as the primary fats. That's a very healthy diet for the population at large. Uh, having said that, some uh, women will do well to experiment with an elimination diet because if you have a food sensitivity, that can drive inflammation, which in turn will affect your fertility. The most common things that are uh, sensitivities are gluten, dairy, soy, corn, eggs, and citrus. And uh, indeed, one study found that um, one of the 
root causes of unexplained infertility was undiagnosed celiac disease. So you mentioned, you know, sometimes it's complex, sometimes it's simple. I mean, that's yeah. a simple blood test. And if you find celiac disease and a woman goes off gluten containing foods, she may have a really easy time conceiving. Yeah. And I, I want to pick up on a couple of those points really quickly. That diet does a couple of things. Hits the microbiome quickly with fiber. You give the polyphenols and the, the micronutrients that are necessary for all the physiological functions to occur. And I'm going to have Alessio Fasano on this podcast in the spring. He's the godfather of the, the, the discovery of how the leaky gut actually occurs. And that piece of it's critical. So if you do have some food sensitivity, that's driving inflammation in the intestinal lining, that microbiome, that whole absorptive area. And you may be micronutrient deficient by de facto secondary consequence of this, this food intolerance. So I entirely agree. And in kids, we do a ton of elimination diets trying to remove those antecedent triggers of inflammation, which then again, will help increase their natural micronutrient uh, absorption, which helps all processes and may even get into the whole world of, as we know, mood disorders. And so you're fixing a lot of problems with, with number two, and that really probably is your number one, I'm sure, but let's, let's move on then. What's next? So sticking with food for a moment, um, I think choosing your fish wisely, uh, fish is a healthy food for all of us. It's even, it's a healthy food for pregnant women, yeah. but not all fish is alike. And so, uh, in the United States, there is a warning against eating high mercury containing fish, which is shark swordfish, king mackerel, and tilefish. Now, do you all eat tilefish in North Carolina? No. <laughs> okay. Well, this is the thing. As I ask people, I think there's only one place in the United States where tilefish is commonly eaten. And that so is. you go, why is it on the list? Well, it's on the list because it kicked albacore tuna off. And tuna is a really, really common fish that's eaten and it's high in mercury. And I think oh. people aren't aware of that. So the tuna warning is, you know, depending on which kind of tuna you choose might be once a week or less. And yet, you know, I remember as a kid, I took a tuna sandwich to lunch many days of the week. It was not yes. a once a week or, or less. And maybe the tuna back when I was a kid had a little less mercury because we hadn't polluted the waters as much. Right, right. But I'm not sure of that, actually. So yeah. um, I would say really pay attention to albacore tuna as well. Uh, there are different kinds of tuna. Uh, you want to also look at your local advisory. And you know, if you're fishing in a very contaminated lake, uh, maybe that's a catch and release kind of situation because you don't want to be bringing that home and eating it. Fish is not only a wonderful source of omega-3 fatty acids, it's also an important source of iodine. And so um, you, you, you know, and probably many, many other nutrients in that, in that protein. So we really want a a more discerning kind of public that doesn't just hear, oh, I have to be careful of fish, so I'm not gonna eat fish at all, but rather right. to choose their fish wisely. Um, um, salmon, especially uh, wild Alaskan salmon is going to be a good choice. That pink salmon is a wild Alaskan salmon because it can't be raised in fish farms. Uh, but Atlantic salmon, which sounds a little like Alaskan, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Atlantic farm is all farmed and it's not a great choice. Uh, tilapia is most mostly raised sustainably now. It's not a great omega-3 choice, but it's a healthy fish. For, so it's a good protein choice. So paying attention and, and being wise about your fish choices, sardines, mackerel, uh, these are other good choices. 
and, and hitting on the iodine piece of that, getting that natural iodine is critical for thyroid function, which then has a direct effect on fertility. So that's a massive piece of information from others take home. And, and I remember from the, the, the nutrition and health conference that the Ventresca from Vital Choice, oh boy, is that a delicious fish. So canned fish, people sort of turn their nose up to canned fish can be some of the freshest fish. If it's again, if it's wild caught and canned, it's excellent too. So I, I completely agree. And, and yes. fish to me is something that we should be pushing more and more and more as a healthy addition to a predominantly plant-based diet. Okay, I, great. I agree. The only thing I'd say about canned products is that a lot of cans are lined with bisphenol A. And so uh, I hope that our country starts to move away from uh, BPA. Uh, you can find the cans without BPA, but it's, it's kind of a, a limited number. Tree Hugger is a website that, that lists the companies that do BPA-free cans. Um, I also want to second iodine. Iodine is critically important for thyroid function. In most Western nations, iodine has been added to salt. But interestingly enough, in the UK, salt is not routinely iodized and mild iodine insufficiency is actually common. It was shown in that ALSPAC trial, a big NIH funded trial, and it's thought to contribute to lower cognitive function in children. So when you get your prenatal vitamin, the first thing to look at is, does it have iodine? Because um, vitamins are not regulated in exactly the same ways as medicines. And so it's not required that a prenatal have iodine in it and more than 50% don't. So the very first thing to look at on the label, does it have 150 micrograms of iodine um, in it? Uh, the next thing to look for on the label is, does it have iron? Pregnant women need to be taking some iron. And um, the, the dose may vary. Uh, it's 18 milligrams preconception and 27 milligrams when you're pregnant. So somewhere in that range, some women will be found to be anemic and will need more than that. But we recommend that small amount for, for all women. And then of course, folic acid. Um, the United States Preventive Services Task Force recommends 400 to 800 micrograms of folic acid. Uh, that was an updated recommendation before it was just 400 uh, in 2017. And it's not just the United States Preventive Services Task Force, it's the American Academy of Pediatrics, it's the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, it's the American Association of Family Physicians, it's the CDC. And so everyone says folic acid. Folic acid, we want healthy children, they help prevent neural tube defects, heart defects, musculoskeletal defects, defects, um, uh, orofacial defects. Uh, in the Nurses Health Study 2, that Walter Whittlett study, uh, when you took a multivitamin, it made it easier for women to conceive and reduce the risk that they were going to have a, a miscarriage. So there is tremendous evidence on the value of taking a, a multivitamin, multimineral supplement. Yeah. And there's one other one that I'm going to add to that list because we're near the uh, North Carolina Research Center here in uh, Kannapolis, where they're doing a ton, a ton, a ton of research on, on food, nutrition, specifically in disease states. And one of the ones uh, that they look at here, specifically as Dr. Zizel, has been studying choline. And mm -hmm. choline turns out to be a major player involved in methylation during pregnancy, which we know to be very important, as you stated, with folic acid or, or folate. So choline, you know, and, and again, according to the, the dietary principles you've laid out is found in fish, eggs, dairy, 
you know, foods that, that we regularly consume in an, auto, in an anti-inflammatory slash Mediterranean diet. So I'll add choline to that list, but that's lovely. So that's perfect. So right. I'm going to agree with you on choline. Uh, the recommended dose during pregnancy is 450 milligrams. That's not so hard to get in the diet. Uh, for right. example, an egg yolk has about 600 plus milligrams. So if you you know, eat eggs regularly, you could probably get it in your diet. Um, and as you said, it's also been shown to have better brain and cognitive outcomes. Uh, it also helps to prevent neural tube defects. So it works with right. the other B vitamins. It is a B vitamin. Uh, I, I completely agree. It is not in most multivitamins, prenatal, right. multivitamin, multinutrients. It is in some. So if you're discerning and you're reading those labels and doing a little uh, research online before you go to the store, you can find one with choline in it as well. Yeah, exactly. And I know I have my favorites. We won't say them online, but if anyone wants to know, they can check the newsletter coming up soon and I'll, I'll put yours in if you want to add them in as well. All right. Where are we at? I think we're at number four. So what's next? <laughs> well, uh, I think this is absolutely part of conventional medicine, but I'm going to repeat it. And that's avoid unnecessary medications because even something like Tylenol that we thought was safe for so long. And we said, it's fine to use Tylenol in pregnancy. And of course, if there's some really urgent new reason, we'd still recommend Tylenol during pregnancy, but there is um, an association that was shown in a study published in 2020 uh, between Tylenol and uh, when taken during pregnancy with ADHD and autism. Right. Uh, I mentioned the risks of SSRI antidepressants, and again, an increased risk of autism. Uh, there are anti-seizure medicines like valproic acid or valproate that increases the risk of autism. So you really want to do a careful review if you are someone who needs to take any kind of chronic medication with your doctor uh, or with your OBGYN before trying to conceive, because sometimes you can substitute and you could say, well, I have to take medicine because I have epilepsy, for example but I'm going to take the safest medication I can uh, so that I can have the healthiest child. And that takes some time sometimes to wean you off one and, and begin the other. Yeah. And, and fundamentally, this gets down to the same principle again, for those diseases that are not hardwired, spending time getting the vessel correct by eating healthy and doing all these other principles of life will make the need for medicine significantly less, if not zero. So I absolutely, and I agree. And I, I would second that tremendously that we need to really work hard at avoiding drugs in any way, shape or form in the pregnancy state. And I could say in our world, we really avoid drugs of any kind medications in kids because the same thing is coming to be true is that we're learning that these medications, although they previously were thought to be benign, they're not benign. And, and whether it's an epigenetic effect or a toxicity effect, these are serious issues that we have to come to grips with as a society. So I agree. All right, number five. Well, we talked a little bit about um, the environmental toxins and we live in the real world and we're gonna be exposed to certain things. Having said that, I like to think of um, our environmental body burden as a beautiful, like your, your body is a beautiful vase and uh, it's filled with all sorts of healthy things. It may have some toxins in it too because we live in the real world. And by the way, 
even in ancient civilization, that was true because when people made fire to cook their food, they were exposed to the products of combustion. Uh, there are metals naturally in the soil. So this is not like, you know, we've completely blown it and this never was true. So I think we evolved being able to manage a certain body burden. And so what you want to do is you want to get yourself as clean as possible in all of the reasonable ways that you can. So for example, you could really reduce exposure to plastics by, for example, glass food storage containers. Don't microwave in plastic. Get used to carrying your own stainless steel water bottle or glass water bottle so that you're minimizing how much plastic gets into your body. BPA is ubiquitous in our society, but it also gets out of your body within three or four days. So as long as you don't keep exposing yourself and the way we expose ourselves is through plastics in our that are, are in contact with our foods, through canned, the liners of canned uh, food unless you go to those companies that are avoiding BPA and then through thermal receipts. So for example, when you pump your gas and it says, do you want a receipt? Say no, because that receipt that comes out is coated with bisphenol A and you absorb it through your skin. So that's one example of um, ways that you can, without enormous difficulty, reduce your exposure. You could do a little self-assessment. I have uh, our medical students and residents do this. Download, download the Healthy Living app on your phone. It's free. And then go around and scan the barcodes on your products. Um, sometimes you're surprised. Like, for example, I had some, I am going to name a brand. I had some yeah, Mrs. Myers <laughs> uh, uh, soap, liquid soap, and I scanned it and it scored terribly. And yet it's in that green product line, you know, if you buy green products. So I was very surprised to see how badly it scored. Um, you take another green product uh, like uh, EO and it scores really, really well. So I think that you can um, uh, easily discern which are the ones uh, that are best. And, and there are companies that are now widely available and it's because of consumer demand. It's one of the ways we're changing the marketplace, which are with our purchasing dollars, we can make a big difference by buying these green products. And mostly they're things we don't care about. So if you love your mascara and you realize it's not so great, okay, keep the mascara. But but there are so many things you probably would be just fine switching out for a healthier product. Do that. Do, do your own kind of uh, household assessment. Minimize pesticides. That's like, you know, things you spray on your lawn, uh, things that you eat because you're buying conventional wherever you can buy organic, but there's also the dirty dozen and the clean 15. So the clean 15 are the vegetables and fruits that they just don't require a lot of pesticides. So they have minimal amounts and the environmental working group says you can reduce your exposure by 92% if you buy from the clean 15 instead of the dirty dozen, which are the, the worst contaminated vegetables and fruits. Yeah, and I think this is all news to use because what you're stating is is the information the industry doesn't want anyone to know because one, they're not texting, uh, they're not testing for toxicity to help us understand what our safety profile is because we don't have the precautionary principle in the United States like there is in Europe, but we do have again mechanistic possibility. So these other companies that you're you're listing, EWG and 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 the likes, are sitting here telling us, okay, here's where the residues are. So you can make your own discernible leap of faith whether or not they're risky for you. But again, the, me the mechanisms exist. So I would agree with you wholeheartedly that every mother should start to look at this as how do I clean myself 
to the lowest level possible. So systemic, systemic chemicals and systemic inflammation are the lowest they can be. So that, that, is, that is such good news to use. I have to say, you know, if I was the healthcare czar in the U.S., which is not something we have, <laughs> I would make organic food available to all pregnant mothers and to young children, because I think we would greatly enhance the health of our society if we did that. Um, I, I, I know it's costly, so I don't want to um, minimize the impact of that on a family's purchasing dollars. Uh, I wish we had projects, for example, where uh, uh, the SNAP program, again, made uh, an extra incentive for organic because they could wire that into their formulas so that uh, it was affordable for people who really are stretched thin on their buying dollars. Yeah. And, and so I ask all of my guests, and I didn't preclude to tell you this, so it's interesting because I ask all of my guests what one thing they would ask policy-wise to be changed at the federal level. And mine has always been school lunch. And you know that about me, because I am passionate that we are poisoning our children through school lunch. And I was gonna ask you, which you just answered beautifully, what your policy change would be. And, and that is, it's such a simple ask. We just spent a trillion dollars in Afghanistan and Iraq, unfortunately, these wars that we're seeing the repercussions of, that makes me so sad. Yet we can't afford to feed all of our kids in the United States an adequate lunch and therefore feed all of these women who are wanting to be pregnant and then pregnant adequate food for health. It's, it's unconscionable in my mind how we're not having a conversation about clean air, clean water, and clean food at the federal level, yet we're having all of these other disparate discussions about things that are important, but not nearly as important as the fundamental three. And, and so, yeah, it, it's, it's a shame and it makes me so sad, but I entirely agree with you entirely agree with you. Yeah, I have to put in a plug for a second, which will get me to my next um, top 10 tip. And that's that um, I see young families as so stressed. And I think one of the reasons for that is that we don't, as a society, support families in having children. Uh, other countries um, require paid leave off after childbirth. They require that the job be preserved um, and depending on the country for up to a year after the birth of a baby. And we know that if uh, a, a parent really could spend that first year with their child, it makes such a huge difference. And yet yeah. we make it near impossible uh, in, in our American society. And people are, are very stressed. I mean, even yeah. outside this pandemic period where we're taping this podcast, uh, this, this is a stressful time for young families. It's very expensive to have children. I'm so delighted that there is now some uh, policy change that is supporting uh, preschool and, and you know, families with young children with tax um, benefits. But um, we, we really need to uh, have um, stress reduction practices in our lives because um, we live in a stressful world. And indeed, when you're really stressed from an evolutionary biology perspective, your body gets the message, wrong time to reproduce. This is the time to focus on survival. 
And so one of the other things uh, when women are struggling with conceiving is I, I talk to them a lot about what kind of practice do they have to manage stress. And there's been really interesting research over the years that shows that uh, you can reverse ovulatory infertility in some women by uh, having them um, do mind-body practices like self-hypnosis and guided imagery, but actually the group programs where uh, women come together in groups and are taught a whole wide range of different practices with the idea that one or more will resonate and they'll make that a regular practice. Those were actually uh, more effective. The groups were more effective than one-on-one -on -one, um, therapy. Uh, and even we know the minimum dose, which it looks like six or more sessions is more effective. And there was a meta-analysis published in 2015 that showed that um, if you did uh, institute mind-body interventions, there was a doubling of the clinical pregnancy rate and significantly reduced psychological stress. So uh, I have to say uh, in our society where we don't automatically teach people how to manage stress, this is another really good thing to be doing. Yeah, and, and again, I go back to my earlier statement. I think number one is food, number two is mind-body. And I could tell you when I came to Arizona, I had zero knowledge of really what was going on in the mind-body sphere. And, and when you and Dr. Weil, you know, put us into some of those meditative uh, exper experiences, it was difficult. You know, I was not well-versed in how to deal with that. And, and as, as somebody who now has the ability to meditate daily and go through all those experiences, I think that is incredible information to impart to all parents that the the the, the down regulation of your fly or flight system as you stated has incredible downstream effects on every regulatory hormone every neurotransmitter that if you stay in this chronic fight or flight mode you are literally turning on every event in your body that says just run just run get away instead of what we should be doing, which is the relaxed state, which is digestion and, and relaxation and, um, and production and, and all of those generavity states, you know, this is, this is critical. And, and I don't think we as a society have done a good job. And I, I, the beauty of it, I agree is we're now learning quickly. I mean, you guys in Arizona have done an unbelievable job of educating providers who then therefore have gone on to educate others. I, I routinely teach kids how to do meditation, tell them to go to the Calm app or Headspace and really push that narrative for parents too. When you have two kids, you know, nap when you can, get grandma over, really work on that mental side of the game. And, and I, I think that is one, two punch. It's yeah. beautifully said. And I'm with you. I really like the apps. I think that um, um, this is a good use of screen time, although you don't usually <laughs> have to look at the screen because usually you're just listening. Right. But um, they, there's just an abundance. I'll mention Insight Timer, which is free, yeah. 80,000 yeah. free guided meditations, music, chants. Um, and it, it's just a lovely tool. Uh, and it could be very brief, a minute or less, and it could be an hour or more, depending on what you have time for and, and what you have stomach for. <laughs> well, and again, yeah. I think it also leads to the intentionality of it. When you are intentionally going for the meditative state, you're actually intentionally down regulating your stress response. You're choosing. And I think the choosing part is huge in this. And, and so that positive state of mind, I think is dramatic. And I think their energetic effect of that as well feeds through to the baby. You know, it's, we don't have any data to understand that really at the quantum level, although I know it's coming. You know, I think the energetic effect of this stuff is huge downstream. Um, 
So, you know, I know we've lost track of number. I, I'm not counting anymore because <laughs> all of your news to use is so good. I'll just let you take it from here. Whatever number we're at, go for it. <laughs> yeah, I think just a few more points. One is, um, as an integrative medicine doctor, I'm always trying to get people to do more exercise. But when you're trying to conceive, this may be the one exception to that rule. Um, there are studies that show that vigorous exercise interferes with conception. And that is true for um, women who are um, doing things like running marathons. Um, and it is uh, even true for women who are going through IVF, where again, you think we're completely superseding their natural hormones, but uh, vigorous exercise can be a problem. The one group where that's not true is the group of women you've brought up who are obese uh, or overweight because their exercise uh, helps them uh, reduce weight or maintain weight. And so it, it creates more normal hormonal status. And so um, if you're of normal weight, if you're lean, uh, really pay attention. This is not the time for, for Bikram yoga. It's not the time to train for your marathon. And especially if you're having trouble conceiving, think about walking, think about um, a gentle yoga class, think about just, do you need to kind of pull that back a bit? Yeah, I call that zone two exercising, right? So your heart rate's between that 90 to 110 range. You're not pushing it really hard, but you're giving it a solid 30, 60 minute run at it. And you're really just, again, not stressing the system to the point of failure, but stressing the system to the point of happiness. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then I, I also want to say, you know, I've mostly focused on women, but I think that um, it's really important to pay attention to um, the, the fathers as well, because uh, in general, 80% uh, of men do not consume enough antioxidants, which your listeners probably know you get by eating vegetables and fruits. So 80% of men are not getting the recommended five uh, vegetables and fruits per day. And of course, in integrated medicine, we like to be, have people even more than that. Um, there was a, um, a Cochrane review, which is in some ways the highest standard of evidence-based medicine, uh, that showed that men who took antioxidant supplements were four times more likely to impregnate their partner and five times more likely to have a live birth. So I think, again, that's a very inexpensive intervention where you get a lot of bang for your buck in terms of um, the effect of it. Uh, also, um, men and women, of course, <laughs> are different in so many ways, but um, in women, every egg in their body has been formed in fetal life. I like to think about this because it means that my grandchildren born uh, by my daughter were actually formed in me. <laughs> because <laughs> when she was a fetus, she was forming those eggs that then, you know, many years right. later went on to be fertilized and become little humans. Um, but um, men, of course, are always involved in spermatogenesis. And so what men eat greatly impact the health of the sperm that are going to be uh, um, produced. And it's a three to four month period to produce new sperm. So you really can make a, a substantial difference by eating uh, more healthily when you're trying to conceive um, and by taking these um, antioxidant supplements. Uh, men also, um, the environmental exposures may again be even more important in men. We know that if a man wears a cell phone in his pocket, where so 
many people keep their cell phones, that reduces the number and uh, messes with the morphology of the sperm. We know that when men eat vegetables and fruits that have a lot of pesticides in them, this was in the Earth study, the Environment and Reproductive Health study, that um, the men had 49% lower sperm count and 32% lower normal sperm. So um, we, we really do want men to be playing a role in um, having the healthiest child possible. When men are more than 45, when they conceive a child, they have a higher risk of having a child with autism, with ADHD, with other kinds of learning problems. So it's, it's uh, really important to pay attention um, for uh, the health of, of both contributors to this yeah. uh, embryo and then fetus and then child. Now, I'm glad you I'm glad you hit on that because you know I am focusing heavily on mothers as well as you have stated, but we do need to get into dads. Down the road I'm going to look for a, a specialist to really touch on this topic. But you know the, the, it is critical because it does take two sides to win this game effectively. And so the principles I think are identical though. Because, you know, as you stated, you know, we need testosterone, we need sperm to be working well, well, testosterone binding globulin happens to be affected by none other than diet, chemicals, all the above. So as you've laid out all these principles down the line, they are literally translatable just to the men. The pathways are slightly different, but otherwise women are significantly more complex. I'll say that physiologically, as I've tried to understand the woman's body, it's an incredibly beautiful situation there that I still struggle to completely understand. But the, the principles that you're stating are completely translatable between sexes. And I think that is a, a very important piece of information that you're hitting on there. And the other thing I would say is that these principles that we've been talking about, they're healthy throughout your life. I mean, there's yeah. nothing that I've said except the exercise, which maybe gets toned down when you're trying to conceive. But right. everything else is applicable to your whole life. That right. the healthy lifestyle that we're talking about is not only of incredible value as you're trying to conceive, but it's a value forever for your entire lifetime. Yeah. And, and that couldn't be a better statement right there because truly from birth on, I mean, you know, clearly we're focusing on mom right now, but my entire focus from the time a child conceives, you know, I mean, is conceived and, and delivered that's it. These principles are just, they're just spit out week after week after week in every well child visit in the newsletter that moms get to read. It has been this principle of understanding, hey, this is the primer. As you guys taught us in Arizona, here we know this is the reality of how it seems to play out the best. We can nuance the details of biochemistry, physiology, but really in truth, you're right. It is the, till the end of time, till you're 99, 100, 110. Now they're saying 150, who knows? I'd love to live that long as long as my mind is still there, but we'll play that game as it plays out. So where else do you have left to go? I, again, I lost track of time, but if you don't have, if you have no more left to go, let's do your number two in the policy wonk category. Well, the number two was what I said about really supporting um, oh, right. parents yes, to yes, take yes. time off. Correct. As, but the, the last thing I would just want to say is that people sometimes ask about detoxification and what's the role of detoxification. So um, certainly there are folks who uh, 
have a change of mind and a change of practice around the time that they decide to conceive. And they begin to do things differently, which is terrific. I would say um, three to four months before trying to conceive. And that's because both spermatogenesis and also the process where the egg fully develops in the follicle is a three to four month period. So interestingly enough, it's about the same for, for men and women. And the very first rule of detoxification is stop taking the toxins in. <laughs> so, I mean, if you're out and about, you know, don't stand behind that bus that's uh, spewing uh, nasty uh, diesel fumes, you know, move away so that you, you don't inhale that pollution. Um, uh, if you're eating an unhealthy diet, shift it, um, reduce those environmental um, products that you're putting on your skin. You can increase your excretion with things like um, drinking more water, eating more fibers, saunas, which make you sweat more, cruciferous vegetables, which help your liver detoxify. Some people benefit from a dietary supplement like milk thistle, very, very safe. Uh, that elimination diet we talked about, which uh, also is a way of detoxifying, getting rid of that trigger for inflammation in your body. Um, some people may go further than this kind of recommendation. For example, if you're someone who's eaten sushi for lunch every single day and you didn't realize because it's called by different names that some of the fish you're eating are really high mercury fish, you may want to get tested to see where your mercury levels are at and then you know, do some additional work. But three to four months is the time to say, okay, I'm going to really clean up my act for the sake of this healthy child. Yeah, and I, I think of this stuff from a perspective of we have genes for two reasons, to survive and procreate. And that's really the sum total of it. So when I look at what you're stating there, you're really looking at a perspective of how do we make sure we optimize the function of our genetics so that we therefore have the best outcome. We don't want to be polar bears in the desert, right? And so I've always said this about different genetic mismatches of human existence. And for the better part of multiple millennia, we existed eating vegetables, fruits, nuts, beans, seeds, meat, and fish in their totality. We had limited exposure to toxins. We walked everywhere. We didn't have mass transportation. We didn't have exposure to EMFs and heat around our, around our, our for men around our genitals because we have a phone tech, uh, touching right next to it. You know, all these things are modern inventions within a better part of a hundred years. And our genome can't keep up with this rapid shift in the epigenetic marks that are coming our way and the environment experiences. So Everything that you've just given, the news to use, the, the, the be fruitful guide to how to be ready is essentially optimizing how our genetics are used for the best outcome, for the best outcome of the child, for the best outcome of the parent, and therefore the best outcome throughout the entire existence of each person's life. And to me, that is the end result of what integrative medicine has taught me and what I learned in my years and study period with you guys is that you guys laid the framework for exactly what allows the human frame to exist the best it can within a society that's really going in the wrong direction. You know, every guest I've had so far recognizes that society is not pulling us in the right direction. It's up to us, the groundbreakers, the the uh, what's the correct term for that? The, the grassroots efforts. Like we need to be building this swell like you have done. I mean, I was somewhere in the first 400 fellows in Arizona and I was blown away at what I learned. And the data has just gotten that much better and integrative medicine is now everywhere. Everywhere I turn, people are talking about the great work that you know I was fortunate enough to learn so early 
from you and from Dr. Weil and Taroni and everybody. And so, you know, I am absolutely grateful for your time. I'm absolutely grateful that you did what you guys did with Arizona. I mean, you put information into the, 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 the sphere of life for me to be able to now take that and spread it all around the pediatric world. The, I, I, in some ways, I think that was the impetus behind starting this newsletter was I had the ability now to take what you guys taught that made so much sense that I wasn't given any knowledge of prior to 2006 and now expound upon it as the data comes out, but you, you built a framework, right? And so I am more than grateful for your hour today, Victoria, but the, the, the real, you know, my heart is really thankful for what you've done for us, you know, fellows at the institution of University of Arizona Center for the Environment. You have done some unbelievable work and I know you're continuing it. And thank you, thank you, thank you for mm -hmm. continuing to be there, charging forward, because I know it wasn't easy. I know you guys <laughs> ran into a lot of headaches, but you have persevered and it is fantastic. Thank you so much, Chris. And thank you for the praise for the fellowship of the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine. And thank you for being such a leader in pediatric integrative medicine, for your commitment, for all the work you do with families, with children, and, and now with this podcast that will reach even way beyond your personal practice. So we're, we're just so appreciative of you. Well, it's my joy and my pleasure. So Victoria, thank you for your time and have a fabulous day. Enjoy the weather in Arizona. Thank you. Well, there you have it. A fabulous one hour plus interview with Dr. Victoria Mazes, an exceptional teacher and just thought leader in the world of integrative medicine and specifically just the way healthcare should be nationally and globally. I'm going to end it here because I know that was long and I'm going to follow this podcast up with a sort of unification podcast, sort of tying the first three speakers together, finishing with the excellent work that Dr. Mazes just gave us, the news to use for how we can look forward to being the best versions of ourselves, specifically in this case as it relates to mothers and their children. So on that note, remember to hug those kids. You may have picked up on that error towards the end during the period of thankfulness where I stated the Arizona Center for the Environment and where it is the Andrew Weil Arizona Center for Integrative Medicine. And that error unfortunately comes from my brain thinking too quickly. I have a close con uh, relationship with Catawba College Center for the Environment and that was on my mind unfortunately, but now after listening through it, I heard it and Dr. Mazes did a great job of uh, correcting that in her follow-up and so just wanted to make that erratum refix. All right, thanks. All right, now for the disclaimer. This podcast and the information provided within it are for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional. It is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This podcast does not constitute the development of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.